Let me ask you a question, Jubilee. Have you ever been defeated by a book before? You know what I mean by that? Have you ever started a book, and after a few attempts to get through it, you lay it down in defeat, and it's been staring at you ever since from the bookshelf, gloating and looking at you? Don't be embarrassed to admit it this morning. Your hope is in Christ. Amen? That book for me is Moby Dick. I recently picked it back up because, well, you know, I'm more than a conqueror. And as I'm going through it, I've found to be that one of my favorite chapters is when Ishmael goes into New Bedford Wellman's Chapel to hear a message before he boards his ship. This chapter is just simply called The Sermon. Father Maple, or Maple, maybe, ascends into the high pulpit and he cries out, gangway largboard and starboard to the midships. Of course, I had to look up every single word to understand what he meant there. He basically is calling his audience to move to the middle of the sanctuary or to the chapel as he gets ready to preach his message that sets the tone for the rest of the book. The preacher of Ecclesiastes this morning is doing the same thing in our text. The preacher has called us together to hear his sermon, and his theme captures our attention immediately. We don't expect to hear a preacher talk like this and use these type of words. Remember, Ecclesiastes 1-2, the ESV says, Vanity, but I'm going to use the Hebrew word, hevel of hevel, says the preacher. Hevel of hevels. All, all, everything is hevel. Can the church say amen? No, 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 preacher, no. We, we know how you use, how scripture uses words. We, we understand what how scripture uses language and what you're trying to get across by saying hebels of hebels. We've heard of, like, say, the holy of holies and the king of kings. We, we understand what that means. When we hear the holy of holies, we understand that what's being meant is that the holy of holies actually is the holiest place. When we hear the king of kings, we know what's actually being meant is that there is no king that's higher. He's supreme. It's to our surprise that we wonder, is the preacher really telling us this morning that everything is utterly and completely hevel to the highest extent, hevel of hevels? This is a hard and difficult way to start your sermon, preacher, especially on Mother's Day. We come to church this morning and we want to hear something good. Some might be thinking, well, why should we even spend time listening to a message that starts like this? If it's so difficult, why deal with it in the first place? Well, difficulty, difficulty doesn't mean that we don't deal with it. Because how I many of y'all know, only by dealing with the difficulty can it really be dealt with. Difficulties don't disappear by ignoring them. Ask me about that 
as we're trying to handle the difficulty of our basement in our house. That's not going away by ignoring it. And if we're, if we're real with ourselves, there's something about the way that the preacher starts his message that rings true in our hearts if we give ourselves permission to admit it. If you have lived long enough in this world, if you've lived long enough in this world, then you've tasted the sourness, you've tasted the bitterness, and you've tasted the blandness of heaven. You know how fleeting time can be. How in the world did I get to my 42nd year in life so fast? You've had some jobs that you thought would satisfy you, but in the end they were futile. You're, you're well acquainted with some dark nights of the soul that are painfully enigmatic and mysterious. You've walked through some seasons that just seem utterly senseless. We, we may not be ready to go all the way where the preacher is going yet. He still, is, he still has to build his case. But truth and told, his theme has grabbed our attention. Like a well-seasoned teacher, the preacher, to build his case, asks us a question that on the low, we all ask at one point in life. If you look at chapter 1, verse number 3, here's the question. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Let me ask that question in two other ways so we can get the gist. What do people really get from all of their hard work under the sun? What's there to show for a lifetime of work? A lifetime of working your fingers down to the very bone. Before we consider how the preacher answers his question, let's think about two words in a phrase that's in this verse. If you're looking at your Bible again, I want you to circle the word gain in your Bible. The word gain. This word has an economic sense to it. Other words that capture what gain means is profit or surplus. It's the desired result from all of the effort and all of the hard work that human beings put into the business of living. It's what's hoped for on Black Friday. To go from the red on your profit and loss statement to the black. It's what one has that's over and above. Good example of this comes from the book of Ruth where Boaz was setting the table to holler at Ruth. You understand what I mean by that, right? The story tells us that one day Ruth just happened to appear to come to a part of a field that's belonging to Boaz. The Lord is working on something here. Boaz shows up. He blesses the people. And then his eyes are blessed when he sees Ruth. He says, who is this? He tells Ruth, now don't you move into another field to glean. I've heard about how you've treated your mother-in-law, and I want you to understand that in this field of mine, you will get all that you need. Ruth 2.14 says this. It says, and at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in wine. 
So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. This is not only game that Boaz is doing right here. This is gain at the same time. She had some left over. This is gain. Circle the word toil. Toil is not a word that you use when you are on vacation. No one says on vacation that I toiled in Hawaii on the beach. Toil is a heavy word. It's a wearsome, wearsome word. It's, it's laborious. It's an effort. It's not just work. It's hard work. Toil is a grandmother raising her grandkids. Toil is a mother of young children. Toil is a person with three jobs so that there's not more month than money. Toil is the BCS student at the end of the semester. Amen. <laughs> Toil is a Genesis 3 word, and it has a close association with this next phrase, which is under the sun. Circle that word, that phrase there, under the sun. I mentioned this last week, and I said that under the sun has both a broad and it also has a narrow meaning. The broad meaning is what we all experience every day of our lives. To live under the sun means that we live life in this world. I emphasize this world when I'm speaking of the world that Paul spoke of in Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 20 and 21. I mean the world that's even now, at this moment, groaning in birth pains, groaning to be set free from its bondage to corruption and sentence of futility. Creation doesn't just groan alone, we know that. Humanity also groans in this world as both sinners and sufferers. It's life lived underneath the hot sun of the Genesis 3 curse when Adam and Eve, and by the virtue, and by virtue of, the, of them, the rest of humanity, decided that it was best to exchange life in the garden under God's rule for life outside of the garden under their own rules. Life under the sun, in a narrow sense, is an autonomous life. It's a secular life where personal experience rules and reigns. It's an earthly life where, if it were not for God and his mercy entering in, we would all live as though he didn't exist and as if we were free from his demands. Annandale's great philosopher, Queen Elsa, captures it quite nicely. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits. Dave Omdahl told me he'd sing this for you after service too, by the way. To test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. I'm free. I'm free from, from God telling me what to do and what to believe. I'm, I'm free to come to my own conclusions. I'm free to live how I choose, love what I choose, value what I choose, champion what I choose. I determine what is right for me. And I will depend only on the resource of human reason. Life under the sun is a life lived strictly from a human perspective in the narrow sense. 
And we are all, every single one of us in this room, are more influenced by this than what we know. One person pictured it like this. It's like drawing a horizontal line between the earthly and heavenly realities and leaving out of consideration everything above the line. Consider those two words in one phrase, and I want you to feel the full weight of the question that the preacher asks us. Gain, toil, under the sun. When was the last time that you wrestled with this question that would send most people back to the more comfortable land of distraction like their Twitter feed or their Instagram profile? To scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll until their mind just moves on from the question. Listen again. What have you actually accomplished that will ultimately satisfy? What is all of your labor wrought for you that is not fleeting? How have you profited from all of your work that will last forever? What do you gain by all the toil at which you toil under the sun? What will you get? You've never asked yourself this question, then you are not acquainted with life that's lived under the sun. A life that's lived under this sun knows the saltiness of frustrated tears that begs the question to be asked, what gain will I take with me when my life is over? We expect the preacher to give us an answer to this question, but he doesn't. What he does give us, though, is a poem that paints an even clearer picture for us of what the answer is, verses 4 through 7. As I was studying verses 4 through 7 this week, I got a certain nursery rhyme stuck in my head. The wheels on the bus go round and round, round and round, round and round. Wheels on the bus go round and round all through the town. Up against the, the backdrop of the permeance of the earth, the preacher presents four illustrations that speak of the cyclical and the continuous motion, but no apparent progress or gain. Look at verse number four. A generation goes... And a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. One person put it like this. When people think about the next generation, they usually think in terms of progress, right? But what happens? The preacher says that as one generation of people come, another generation of people are leaving the scene. Now as, the, now as a, a member of the forgotten generation, Generation X, Toph and I know this quite well. You see, it's all about the boomers or the millennials. 
Just skip my generation completely. And now they're talking about Generation Z and Generation Alpha. Yeah, Alpha. <laughs> the preacher would, of course, come and pat me on the shoulder and say, now, now, forgotten one, this is just the way of the earth. This is what happens. The earth remains the same even though generation after generation after generation after generation cycles on through and what gain has been made. Innovation can put an ECG monitor on your wrist in the form of, SWAT, of smartwatches to, to check the status of our heart and yet we are not one step closer to an innovation that can check the status of our heart without God. Jerome, a church father who translated the Bible into Latin, captures this irony. He says, what is more vain than this vanity? That the earth, which was made for humans, stays, but humans themselves, the lords of the earth, suddenly dissolve into dust. A generation goes and a generation comes. The second illustration of the same principle is the sun. Look at verse number five in your text. The sun rises, and then it goes down, and then it hastens to the place where it rises again. Your Bible may have an interesting footnote next to the word hasten that depicts the endless and the continuous and the fruitless and the profitless toil of the sun. It says the sun rises, and it goes down and returns panting to its place, like it's out of breath. Panting. Oh, son, why are you so tired? How is it that you're like the, the celestial Greek myth mythological character that must eternally roll his rock up the hill just for it to roll down again? I want you to take note of this one day, Jubilee. Take note how the sun just toils endlessly and endlessly, sun up and sun down with no apparent seemingly gain. We don't get the picture yet. The preacher gives us a fourth illustration, verse number seven. All streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Now, we, we have a, a dear couple, the Nixes in our mix, that are about to celebrate their 40th wedding anniversary. Amen. Give them 40th wedding anniversary. And they're taking a trip to Israel. And I thought maybe one of their stops would be a place in Israel where this is illustrated beautifully. You know, in Israel, if you're familiar with the map of Israel, if you've been there, you know that there is a sea in Israel called the Dead Sea. If you're familiar with the Dead Sea, you understand that the Dead Sea has no outlet that flows into another body or river. Just the Jordan River, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, century after century, flows and flows and flows into the Dead Sea, and it is not full. Now, don't get all 21st century on me and ruin the illustration. Of course, it isn't full because of evaporation, but that's not the point. It's not what he's trying to get at. It's not about the water cycle as we understand it today. It's about the continuous activity with apparently no gain. 
You see the preacher's point this morning, Jubilee. The sun toils, the winds toil, the streams toil. One person said it well, that if the sun and the wind and the mighty rivers have nothing to show for their constant labor, then what hope do we have of ever accomplishing anything in life under the sun? Like generations, our days come and go. Like the sun, we rise every day, we work hard, and then we set in bed just to do it again after a few short hours of sleep. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Like the wind, we know the monotony of the same boring routine. We know that while there are some special moments of being a parent, we also know that there are some boring moments. You don't have to say it in here this morning, I'll say it, but sometimes being a parent is boring. Diaper after diaper after diaper. Bottle after bottle after bottle. Tantrum after tantrum after tantrum. Frozen after frozen <laughs> after frozen after frozen. The cycle seemingly never stops. Like the streams, we know what it's like to pour our hearts into the soul of a, uh, 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 pour our hearts into the soul of a relationship, pour our hearts into the soul of a career, pour our hearts into the soul of some dream, and yet it never fills up the way we desire it to be so. If you've lived life in this world, you understand this well. And you understand it so well that verse number eight just makes sense. All of this monotony is tiresome. No one can bear to even describe it. One version of verse eight says, all of life is far more boring than words can ever say. The preacher is not done hammering his point home. He then instructs us to pay attention to our own experiences. Have you ever felt or have you ever been shell-shocked by the fact that your eyes never, ever tell you that they have seen enough? Your eyes are never satisfied. Life under the sun is a constant search for something new. And if you can't even quench the thirst... How can you possibly know the gain of full satisfaction? If our eyes had a favorite song, then Trip Lee's song, Something New, would be his jam. Trip says, I want something new. What I have, it won't do. I think I have some kind of flu because I'm addicted to the new. Our ears are no better, right? The ears are, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Just like the Dead Sea, our ears are receiving a constant flow of noise. Just think about this last week alone. Think about how much stuff that you listen to in a given day. 
Our ears are, are inundated with sounds from our phones and cars and speakers and podcasts and audio books and news reports and YouTube and Netflix and voicemail and video games and Spotify. And yet our ears are never, ever, 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 ever filled. Silence should be avoided at all costs because there's always something to hear. Our ears are never filled and therefore never experience the gain of satisfaction. Now with this scathing analysis of the human condition under the sun, the preacher moves from the hevel of the natural world to the hevel of the human world and he turns our gaze to the topic of history. How many of y'all know that history is important? You can say amen to that. History is important, right? It's hard to move forward without learning the lessons of history. Three of us recently got back from a tour of history that was absolutely heart-wrenching. As we traveled from Atlanta to Alabama to Mississippi to Tennessee, anger course within my veins as we stopped at site after site after site that told the story of the civil rights movement. We walked the streets where slaves were sold. We saw the last hotel where MLK would have stayed or had stayed in. We saw hundreds, hundreds of jars of dirt that came from places where black bodies were lynched and hung on a tree for something as simple as a reason as looking at a white woman. In fact, amongst those jars that we saw, there was actually dirt from Duluth, Minnesota. that represented three lynchings in this state that happened. As hard as it was, we were reminded that you can't deal with the present if you choose to ignore the past. History is important. But notice what the preacher says about history in verse under the sun in verse number nine. He says, what has been done is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. History, like the earth, stays the same, and it isn't going anywhere from the perception of those who are under the sun. History has a sort of a, a weariness about it. And because of verse number 11, it always seems to be repeating itself in one shape or form. Verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. That word things there in this verse could mean events or it could mean people. If it means people, it's fitting, it's a fitting end to how the preacher starts his poem because he started by telling us about people. One generation of people go and then the next are forgotten. Another generation comes. Author Zach Eswine powerfully reminds us that if we stop and think about it, this is an interesting thought, if we stop and think about it, we have never heard of almost everyone who has ever lived. Did you get that? Let me read that again to you. We have never heard of almost everyone who has ever lived. This will be the case even for future generations when they come and they go. Now, someone might object and say, hey, wait a minute, preacher, there, there are new things all over the place. Starbucks has a new ice caramel cloud macchiato. That's new. 
Advancements in medicine, that's new. Smart windows, that's new. The 5G network, that's new. You're right, the preacher would probably say to this person. But then he may ask this question. Do any of these things and the million other inventions actually make things new? Is human nature new? Do we still have the same basic issues in life? Have moral deficiencies been solved or are we getting worse? Look at all of these new things. Recognize that not one of them ultimately changes the human nature and all of them in the end do not satisfy. Think about that old iPod that was so new it's now collecting dust somewhere in the corner of your closet. So Jubilee, let me ask you a question. How you feeling right now? Wave after wave after wave of this poetry to give us this image. How are you feeling at this particular moment? Are you feeling a little heavy? I don't want you to be mad at the preacher. Don't be mad at me either. I'm just preaching the Bible. Don't be mad at the preacher because the preacher is doing us a solid here. He's actually doing us a favor here by telling us this stuff, right? He's helping us see that the reality of life under the sun is what it is so that we can adjust accordingly. He's helping us to recognize what life is like in this world so that we don't go looking for something under the sun where we won't find it. One person said it like this, it's the embrace of reality that the preacher urges upon us for the good of our lives in the here and the now. He shows us the weariness of our existence so that delusion, delusionment will set in and we in turn go searching for what we need elsewhere. If we gain nothing from our toil under the sun, then we must not look for gain under the sun. As if, if we just tried harder, or if we just searched longer, or if we just tried this thing or tried that thing, we'll actually find it. Famous C.S. Lewis quote will ring true here. It says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Somebody say another world. This is life lived above the sun. Somebody say above the sun. You won't find this phrase in Ecclesiastes, but I think this is what Ecclesiastes brings us to by the end of the book. If under the sun represents earth's realities, then above the sun represents heavenly realities. To live above the sun, even while we live under the sun, even while we still experience frustration, still experience pain, still experience trouble, struggle, still experience weariness. If we live above the sun, it means that we are living in a right relationship with God. This is how Ecclesiastes ends, right? This is what we must constantly be reminded of as we're going through this book. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of humanity. 
when God enters back into the picture, I want you to notice how what we talked about is transformed. Instead of a tired son, Psalm 19 verse 1 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. It speaks about how he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man that runs his course, course with joy. In Psalm 104, the winds aren't on a hamster wheel. They are the Lord's messenger. They're the Lord's vehicle, and he rides on its wings. In the same psalm, the streams don't just endlessly pour into the ocean or toward the sea with no hope of completion when the Lord is in the picture. That psalm tells us when the Lord is in the picture, these streams are actually used to water and to quench the thirst of the animals. Above the sun, Jubilee, the futility of this world is solved. And in Romans 8, 20 and 21, which I read earlier, it actually gets filled out even more. Verses 18, 19, 21, 22 to 25 join the party when we live above the sun. Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but in hope. Because of him who subjected it to it in hope. That the creation itself one day will be set free from his bondage to the corruption. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know, Paul says, he's getting into his preaching mode, I think, we know that all creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we're saved, Jubilee, now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Is anybody waiting for patience in life under this sun this morning? We live above the sun. It transforms how we live underneath the sun. While there may be nothing new under the sun, I want you to rejoice this morning and boast in the words of the God who is above the sun. He says, behold, I'm doing a new thing. I'll make a new covenant. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanliness. That's good news to my soul. And from all of your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you, what will you give me? I will give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new spirit. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall be my people and I will be your God. Jubilee, how many of y'all know that's all we need in this world under the sun? To know that we are the people of God and that he is riding with us in every circumstance that we find ourselves in. <laughs> because of what the Lord has done and what he will do, we're called to sing a new song, right? How 
will the Lord do all of these new things this morning, Jubilee? I want you to consider Christ. There is nothing new under the sun. There's nothing to be gained, right? Is that what the preacher told us this morning? Well, what if? What if redemptive history, the history of God doing work to save his people, what if that history entered into human history that's under this sun? That would be new, right? That's a new thing right there. I mean, y'all know that a radically new event happened when Jesus, the Son of God, entered into this Genesis 3 cursed world. This Genesis 3 under the sun world. Jesus said in John chapter 8 verse 23, you are from below. I'm from above. You are of this world. I'm not of this world. And maybe this might make you say amen. Think about this. Christ came from above the sun. And his hard work gained you everything. Did you get that, Jubilee? I feel like I'm in here with three people. Christ came from above the sun, entered into this world, toiled so that you can have everything. Consider Christ this morning. Jesus gave us a new birth that opens up the doors of the kingdom. Jesus establishes the new covenant by his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension, which paves the way for the forgiveness of sins and brings us to God. Jesus gives us a new commandment in the spirit to enable us to keep it. Love one another as I've loved you. You may be asked, well, how have you loved me? Jesus gave us a new example of love by laying his life down for us in death. By doing so, Jesus conquered death, who is the main enemy in Ecclesiastes that we'll see. Christ transforms those who trust in him so much that it's said that if anybody, anybody is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Christ creates a new humanity and squashes the beef that different ethnicities have with one another and more importantly, the hostility that mankind has with God. Because of the new age that Jesus has ushered in, John in Revelation sees the coming future of new heavens and new earth and the new earth. And then he hears a glorious promise that I want you to take with you this morning. Behold, I'm making all things Talk to me. Behold, I'm making all things new. Do you remember that new song that I mentioned earlier? Listen to the words of this new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you've made them a kingdom of priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. So Jubilee, what's the preacher's answer to his question? What does a person gain by all the toil of which he toils under the sun? The preacher's answer, I think the text says, is that under the sun, humanity gains nothing. Apart from God, people gain nothing 
from all of their toil under the sun. Are you in here this morning, dear friend, and you are a part from God? Come to him through his son. Ask about Jesus from the person who brought you. Come see us at the front and don't leave here apart from God. Well, apart from God, your toil is absolutely nothing. What is the solution to this problem? The solution to this problem is to live life above the sun in Christ. Where 1 Corinthians 15, 58 tells us that while we endure the difficulties of this world, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your work is not in vain. Glory to God. In the Lord your work is not in vain. I lost my place. We found a treasure in Christ, and through this word, world, we, ha- we found a treasure in Christ. And, and even though we don't get anything from this world, we possess everything. So much so that alongside of Paul, we yearn that Christ would be magnified in our body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is what? Gain. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In Christ, yes, I'm taking something out of this world. The title of this series is called Heat Academy, Lessons from Life Under the Sun. And the lesson that we learned today is that apart from God, people gain nothing from all of their toil under the sun. Under the sun, you gain nothing. Above the sun, you gain everything. Everything. Everything, Jubilee. You're walking out of here with everything above the sun in Christ. Can you stand with me? Can you sing this last stanza of the song that we just sung as we were singing it? I said, oh, man, this is amazingly connected to the sermon.